0: In 1987, Hank Williams Jr. released a song called If Heaven Ain't a Lot Like Dixie. You're familiar with the song, I see. And the chorus of the song goes something like, I'm not going to sing it, if John, let's see, this is why I'm jealous of John. John preaches, teaches, sings, he does it all. He's a five-star athlete, right? Right? But the, song, the chorus of the song basically goes, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I just assume stay home. And so in the song, Mr. Williams essentially is proposing that what I want heaven to be like is I want heaven to be like my mini kingdom here on earth. That just as I have established for myself a very comfortable, nice little kingdom here on earth filled with dusty co- country roads where I know everybody and everybody thinks that I'm a big deal and where everything is really comfortable for me. Like that's how I picture heaven to be. That's how I imagine heaven to be. That's how I want heaven to be. And if heaven can't match my little kingdom on earth, if heaven can't reach my ideal, I'd just soon not go there you know I think as though most of us probably would not be so bold as to write a song that way The truth of the matter is, is that for most of us, if we were to go around and I were to ask you, how do you imagine heaven to be? How do you picture the kingdom of God to be in your mind? The way the most of us would picture the kingdom of God to be is we would picture the kingdom of God to be very similar to the tiny kingdoms that we've built here on earth. We would picture the kingdom of God to be filled with the things that we like and the people that we like and the places that we like. And that's why I'm convinced that for most people, for most believers and non-believers alike, that heaven will be a shocking place, that heaven will be a shocking place. One of the most disturbing teachings of Jesus takes place at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that there will be many who say, But Jesus, we have prophesied in your name. We have done many great works in your name. We have cast out demons in your name. We have preached and we have taught in your name and Jesus will look at them and he will say depart from me for i never knew you they will have proclaimed jesus they will have declared lord lord they will have assumed that they are in the kingdom of heaven but they will be shocked as they stand before the judgment seat of christ to realize that their lo- that their words were impotent but their lives were off targets And that the kingdom of God will not be accepting to them. That the kingdom of God will be shockingly separated from them. That they will not be welcomed in. As we're going to see in the parable that Jesus tells this morning, Jesus gives a shocking definition of those who are in the kingdom of God. Jesus gives a shocking definition to the temple leaders on this day and to Bible Belt Southerners in our day of those who will be accepted into the kingdom of God and those who will be excluded from his Father's house. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21? Matthew chapter 21. We continue on Tuesday of Passion Week. Tuesday of Passion Week. We've been there a couple of weeks now. We're going to be there a couple of weeks yet. So Matthew chapter 21, we're going to begin in verse 28. By this point, brothers and sisters, your Bibles ought to just be falling over to Matthew, all right? So I'm not going to cut you much slack. Let's stand together. As we read Matthew chapter 21, maybe some of you, you're you're like me, Matthew's already fell out of your Bible, all right? So uh, you've had to buy a new one, so I'll cut you some slack. But the rest of you ought to just be falling open to Matthew. All right, Matthew chapter 21, we'll begin in verse 28 and read through verse 32. God's word says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant and sufficient word this morning. You may be seated. If you'll remember back to what we said last week, we've realized that a confrontation was going to be coming for some time. That as Jesus has ridden into Judea and he has not so subtly declared himself as the messianic figure, as the long awaited Messiah of Israel, as he has received the worship of the Galileans, and then in the temple complex, as he has received the worship of the children, he has flipped over the tables of the money changers and the merchants, he has healed the lame, he has cursed the fig tree, he has done miraculous. Remarkable and combative things. And so, for some time, we've realized that a confrontation was coming between Jesus and leaders of the temple who had, the Bible says, a murderous indignation that has been arising up within them. And so, last week, we saw what was the first of a series of confrontations that are going to be coming between now and Jesus' ultimate demise on the cross. What we're going to be seeing today and over the next couple of weeks is an extension of the scene from last week that Jesus is going to give an extended response when the disciples come. So all of this is in response to the question that they asked Jesus in verse 23 when they come to Jesus and they say, what kind of authority do you think you have? What authority gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to come and do all of these things that you're doing? Who gave you the authority to come in here and teach the way that you're teaching? Who gave you the authority to come and flip over tables and to heal people and to declare people okay for worship? Who do you think you are? And so we know that, that in the initial response, the, the leaders of the temple are not satisfied. And apparently they hang around for a while. And Jesus, with a crowd of people, in addition to the chief priests and scribes, begins to teach in a series of parables. And so Jesus is going to teach three parables. And we should see all three of these parables as taking place at this one scene. And this morning's parable is certainly is a part of that. And so the first parable that Jesus tells is Jesus tells us the story of a man who has two sons. Now this family is like many Hebrew families of this day. They own a vineyard. They own a vineyard. This would have been a very common way to establish your livelihood in first century Palestine. It was very common for a family to have a vineyard. And the way that a typical Palestinian family cared for a vineyard is they cared for it by themselves you know like my grandmother they had a cotton farm and there were 13 brothers and sisters and the way that they cared for the cotton farm is they all wouldn't pick cotton they took care of it together and it was very much the same picture in first century palestine and so the father goes to his sons and he's going to ask his sons, or he's not actually going to ask them, he doesn't ask them, does he? He tells them, he's going to tell his sons to go out and to work in the vineyard. Now this was not an uncommon, response, an uncommon demand of a father, this would have been the expectation in a Hebrew household of this time. This has been common to have been seen all around Judea, all around Samaria, all around Galilee. This is what you would have seen taking place. And this was not, we should not see this as being a self centered request on behalf of the father. The sons would drink from the vineyard, the sons would profit from the vineyard. They would sell the fruit of the vineyard, and it would provide food at their table, clothing that they would wear, the things that they would use. Not only that, The sons in this day were those who would inherit the vineyard one day. And so the better that they would worry the vineyard and the more profitable the vineyard would become, the greater their inheritance would, would become. And so the father is literally inviting his sons to come and invest in their own inheritance, to come and invest in that which will benefit and profit them greatly in the future. And so the father goes and he goes to his first son. And he says, son, go out and work in the vineyard. And the son does something that would have caused those that were listening, those certainly who were the temple leaders of the day, to have groaned or perhaps to have even shouted audibly. The son looks back at his father and defiantly, he says, I will not go. I will not do it. I almost have it in my mind of that toddler stomping her foot saying, no, I'm not doing it. Right? Y'all have all seen that? Maybe that's just in my house. Okay. Maybe I'm the only one with kids like that. But I just have it in my mind. Him just kind of, stomp- dad, I'm playing Call of Duty with my friends today. Right? You've all seen that before? And so he, he wounds his father. He shows contempt for his father. He disobeys his father. But Jesus says a short time later, he has a change of heart. A short time later, he changes his mind. A short time later, he has remorse. He repents. It doesn't say that he goes back and tells his father. It doesn't say that they have a long, drawn-out conversation. It just says he goes to the vineyard. He goes to the vineyard and he fulfills his father's initial request. He does what his father had asked him to do and what he initially had said that he would not do. But his father has a second son. And so his father, having just been wounded by his first son, just being defied by his first son, goes to his second son. And he goes to his second son and he says, son, go to the vineyard and work. Now this son is impressive. This son is like the senator of the family. He goes and he says, yes, father, I would be honored to go and work in your vineyard. This son even goes so far as to get brownie points because he goes, yes, sir, right? Like this is that kid that watches the one kid get in trouble and they're over there. Like I have a kid like this in my house that if she sees one sister get in trouble, she's over there and then all of a sudden like she's like laying things out and doing things super nice because she wants to show you how super awesome she is, right? And that's kind of the picture that you have of this other son that he's over there and he's like, yes, father, it would be such a delight to go and serve you in the vineyard today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I would love to go, right? And even though he delights his father in the initial encounter, and even though he shows himself initially to be pleasing to his father and to be obedient to his father, he proves himself to be a liar. He proves himself to be rebellious in spirit. He proves himself to be ultimately a deceiver, to be ultimately unloving of his father because even though he was initially obedient in words, even though he was initially claiming to love his father and claiming to do what his father had asked him to do, he never shows up. He never actually gets around to doing what his father had asked him to do. Now, for us, we get kind of the picture But we don't understand in our setting the gravity with which this would have landed on Jesus' initial day, initial uh, audience. You see, for us, we live in a day, we live in an era in which we tolerate the backtalk and disrespect of children. We live in an era in which we tolerate the disobedience of children and the rebellion of children. But Jesus did not live in an era like that. Jesus did not live in a day like that. You see, Jesus lived among a people who among, they had ten laws, the ten commandments. And do you know what they believed about the ten commandments? They believed literally, and by the way, this is what we believe. They believed literally that the ten commandments were written by the finger of God himself on a tablet of stone. And do you want to know what one of those ten commandments were? You should obey your mother and your father. That one of the things that God Himself thought such a priority. That one of the things that God thought so fundamental to the function of humanity, to the function of his own people, that he put it in the stipulations of the covenant between him and his own people, you shall obey your mother and your father, wrote it with his own hand on top of the mountain on a tablet of stone, face to face with Moses and handed it to him. Deuteronomy chapter 21, do you know what it says? It says that if you have a rebellious son... And discipline does not correct him, that you are to take him to the elders of the village. And they are to take him outside of the village. And they are to stone him to death. So when Jesus tells a parable of a man who doesn't have one rebellious child, you understand, he has two. He has one son who has the audacity face to face with his own father to say, I will not go. I will not obey you. I will not do what you've told me to do. And then he's got another son who has the audacity to look him eyeball to eyeball, mano a mano, and lie in his face with a smile on his face and deceive him. So we have a man here. He doesn't have one rebellious son, but has two rebellious sons. In this day, that crowd would have been stunned. They would have been groaning. They would have been wondering how in the world one house could have such wicked sons. And so you have to understand, the question that Jesus is posing is much more perplexing than it initially comes across. That when Jesus looks at them having told them the story, and he asks them, "How is it? who is it that has done the Father's will?" they, they look and their they're, they're, they're answer- and their wills are turning because for them, neither of these sons are inside the will of the Father. Neither of these sons have shown themselves to be good sons. Both of these sons have shown themselves to be rebellious. So Jesus answer- that Jesus asked them the question. And they come back and they answer it rightly. They answer it correctly. They say the first one. The first son. The son who, though he initially showed contempt to his father. Though he initially disobeyed his father. Though he, initially, though he initially wounded his father, though he initially acted out, out outside of the parameters of love, outside of what love looks like, though he initially showed distaste for his father, he repented, he showed remorse. Though, so he demonstrated love, he went out and did what his father asked him to do. So the first son, not the second son, not the one that said he would do what he, and he didn't actually do it, not the one who lied and deceived his father, not that one. And Jesus has them exactly where he wants them. Jesus has them exactly where he wants them. You see, you remember back in, back in uh, when, when David had committed the sin with Bathsheba, what Nathan did? Nathan tells a parable, right? And what does Nathan do with the parable? Before he even tells David that he's confronting David in his own sin, he turns David's own conscience against him, doesn't he? And you know what Jesus is doing here with the leaders of the temple? He's turning their own conscience against them. Because this is what Jesus looks at them and he says, you are right. You are right. Finally finally you've answered one of my questions right. All of these questions I've been asking, all of these quizzes I've been given, and you finally got one right. But guess what? You're not the first son, you're the second one. You see, tax collectors, like the author of this book, oh how sweet this must have been for Matthew to hear, How sweet it must have been. By the way, he's the only one that writes this parable down. Why do you think? Oh, how it highlights God's grace to Matthew. That's why. Um, Tax collectors, people that rob the people of God prostitutes, those who were promiscuous, those who who slept around, who, who were paid to have sex with other people and live outside of the will of God. They were those who initially in their lives showed contempt for the will of God, showed contempt for their heavenly Father. They, by their very path of life, chose to indulge in pleasures and appetites and wealth of the world and to live outside of the will of God. But do you know what they did? They received the baptism of John. They received the baptism of John. They repented. They repented. And so, though they initially were outside of the will of God, Though they initially lived as though God was not there, though they initially lived as though God was not real, though they initially lived as though they would not answer to God one day, their hearts were turned around, their minds were changed, and their lives were lived out that way, like Matthew's was. But not the leaders of the temple. Not the leaders of the temple. The leaders of the temple were those who professed with their mouth, God, we love you. God, we love you. God, we will do whatever you want us to do. We will go wherever you want us to go. We will offer you whatever sacrifice you command. We will worship you in whatever way you tell us to worship you. We will pray. We will fast. We will make sure that everybody knows it. Oh God, we profess our love for you. We tell and shout from the mountaintops. We love God. We are lovers of God. We are leaders for God. We will always go to church. We will always do what God has said. And yet their hearts were far from them. And they rejected the baptism of John. And they rejected the Son of God. And they rejected God's prophet and God's Messiah. They rejected the Lord so much so that God, Jesus, would look at them and say, do not get the heart of God. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. Can you imagine being in the room that day? Or being in in the temple complex that day? And Jesus takes the very scum of society, the worst of the worst, the most despicable people that you can imagine, traitors to the country, thieves, swindlers, promiscuous women, low lives, people that they believed didn't even deserve to breathe the same air that they breathed. And he's saying that these are the people that will come and are invited into the Father's house and you will be excluded from the Father's table. These should be welcomed into the temple of God and you should be excluded from the temple's walls. Can you imagine what it would be like if this morning I brought in molesters and abusers and thieves from the Talladega prison? and I paraded them down front and I said these are the ones that are welcome for worship and the rest of you should leave. Can you imagine? Jesus is holding up the scum of their society and he is saying they will come into the kingdom of God before you! They will be first! What's the difference? What's the difference in the two sons? What's the difference in the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those leaders of the temple? The difference in our text is the word change. It's the word change. Look at it in verse 29. It comes up again in verse 32, right? Verse 29 says, And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind. Circle the word changed. The word changed. The exact same word comes up again in verse 32, but it's not referring to the first son. That is, it's not referring to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. The second time, it is referring to the the temple leaders. It is referring to the chief priests and to the scribes, to the second son. For John came to you, to you, the, the scribes, to you, the temple leaders, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change circle change again your minds and believe him the difference is is one changed and one didn't one repented and one didn't the word change there means more than you know I wanted biscuits but I had pancakes it means that I did something I made a decision and then I felt remorse over it it, mean, it means I, I, I had one opinion, I had one thought, I had one set of desires, I had one, one direction in life, but my mind was changed, my opinions were changed, my appetites were changed, my, my ways were transformed, so much so that I didn't want to do any of those things anymore, and now I'm doing something different. See, that's what Christian repentance looks like. That's what Christian repentance looks like. It's an inward, outward change. An inward, outward change. Do you notice the order of what happens here? This is very important. He says, but afterward, he changed his mind and went. He didn't go first, he didn't go to the vineyard first. He changed his mind and he went. It was a changing of his opinions. It was a changing of his thoughts. It was a feeling of remorse toward what he had done to his father. It was a thinking, I can't live like this anymore. It was, I, I've got to be right with my dad. I've got to be right with my dad more than I've got to do what I wanted to do before. I've got I've to overcome what had been, happened before. It's got to be different now. It can't be like that any before, any, the way it was in the past. And so there's a, a transformation of appetite. It's a transformation of opinion. And out of the transformation of what he thought, now he went and did. That, that, that's the essence of Christian repentance. It's what I think transforms now what I do. It's what I want transforms where I go. It's it's what I love transforming who I become. It can't happen the other way around. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the chief priests were doing. That's what the temple people did. They said, you know what? We're going to work on the outside. We're we're, going to polish up the outside. We're going to do all of the things on the eggs. We're going to pray. We're going to offer sacrifices. And on the inside, they were rotting away. The first son, on the outside, yes, Father, I will go. Exterior, on the outward behavior, commendable. Except what happened? It faded and died quickly, didn't it? It faded and died quickly. No, Christian repentance is an inward-outward change, an inward-outward transformation. It begins with a transformation of the opinions. It begins with a transformation of the desires. It begins with a transformation of who you are and what you want and what you love and what you hunger for and what you thirst for and what you go after. It is the transformation of what goes on inside the man that leads to what happens outside of the man. But it must go out, it must go out. If it never finds its way outside of you, it really didn't happen inside of you. But that's exactly what we see in the life of the men. Jesus is teaching them. The baptism of John, that these prostitutes and tax collectors that you saw, when you saw them dunked in the wilderness, when you saw them baptized in the Jordan River, you saw, man, what good is water? What good is that? How is that going to wash up a prostitute? How is that going to clean up a swindler? But what you didn't see is what was happening inside the man's head. What you didn't see is there was a transformation happening inside the heart. What you didn't see is there was a, a change of mind that led to a changed life, that there was a remorse and a repentance that was going on. See, the opposite was happening in the lives of those in the temple. See, so the, the, the reason that the temple, uh, those leaders in the temple rejected the baptism of John, because the Bible says that they went there and they saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes being baptized. They saw them there. They heard John and they heard him preaching. And so they rejected it. Do you know why they rejected it? Because when they did the moral comparison test, they won going away. They won going away. When they looked at those who John was baptized, you know what they thought? Those guys need something like this. Those guys need something like this. I don't need this. Look at our lives compared to their lives. When They won the moral comparison test. But what Jesus is teaching them is winning the moral comparison doesn't win you favor with God. Winning moral comparisons doesn't win you favor with God. In, fa- in fact, moral comparisons immunizes you from grace. Because what happens is, is you can always find somebody that you believe doesn't stack up morally with you. No matter what your stature in life is, no matter what you've done, you can always find somebody that doesn't measure up to you. There are people right now, we were, Megan and I were watching a show about a man who got life in prison for murdering a person. And you know what he's on there in his interviews, you know what he's saying? Nobody's better than me. I'm as good as anybody else. I just made a mistake. I just did this. I just did that. I just did this. You can always find somebody that you believe is your moral and equal. You can always find somebody that is morally less than you. And so in other words, you can find excuses for you not to need grace. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that the goal of Christianity is not to win moral comparisons? The goal of Christianity is to not win and pass the moral comparison test. How many people have you talked to about coming into the church or to coming into the faith and they say this, look, people there are no better than I am. In fact, I may live a little bit better life than the people that I've seen in the church. Well, of course you have. Of course you have. The church is literally the only place on earth where the only way that you can become a member is to declare that you are wicked. (sighs) No, brothers and sisters, the essence of the Christian life is not to pass the moral comparison test. That is anti-gospel. The essence of the Christian life is to break free from being a prisoner to the moral comparison test. To say Christ has lived the moral life. Christ has lived the righteous life. And I will claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ as my own righteousness. And I will walk in freedom. And I will walk in joy. And I will walk in peace. Because Christ has made it so. And I will glorify him with every single step. Oh Christ, won't you receive me? Christ, won't you lift this yoke of burden from me? Christ, stop make, letting me measure myself by everyone else and instead let me receive your measurement before God Himself. So maybe you would ask, well, then, the sin of the first son is it insignificant? The sin, if, if, if the prostitutes and the tax collectors, if, if they're going to go first into the kingdom of God, is their sin of sexual promiscuity of their, or their sin of, of treason against their people, their sin of swindling their people, is that, is that insignificant? Not at all. That's a modern perversion of the gospel. To say that but since we don't want to be Pharisees and we don't worry about sin at all is a modern perversion of the gospel. No, we don't minimize sin because we don't want to win moral comparisons. It's the opposite that is true. What is the, the only reason we, Jesus highlights that is tax collectors and prostitutes is to highlight two things. Highlight, first of all, their repentance. Their repentance. That if you want to come into the kingdom of God, you may, if you repent. You, if you repent. And second of all, Not to minimize their sin, but to maximize his grace. Not to minimize their sin, but to maximize his grace. That if you repent of your sin, if you have a, a changing of your opinions, if you feel remorseful that you have sinned against your heavenly Father and you have demonstrated contempt against God with the way that you have lived and with the way that you have, you have ordered your life, that now you can come and whatever your past is, whether you were a prostitute or a tax collector, whatever your skeletons are, whatever your story are, is, now you are a showcase opportunity for the grace of Jesus Christ. You understand that what Jesus is teaching the temple workers that day is that there is no sin. And what what Matthew is documenting from the history of his own life is that there is no sin. There is no history that is too strong, too big, too overwhelming, that it consumes or overruns or outpaces the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ is so powerful, so mighty, so strong that I believe it could flatten the very solar system that all of us spin in every single week. This morning, there is an accuser. There is an accuser. And if he is not here among us, his minions certainly are. And that accuser, he is in your ear. And he's telling some of you some lies this morning. Somebody here probably has an abortion in your past. And that accuser is telling you that you've got the sin that is so big and so dark that the church would never accept you, that Jesus doesn't want you, and that you're here, and you don't even, he doesn't really even know why you got up and wore yourself out to come through the rain on this cold morning to show Can I tell you something? He's a liar. The grace of Jesus Christ is waiting to showcase itself with you. Somebody here? You've got homosexual experiences in your past. And in your mind, the accuser is trying to convince you. He's trying to convince you that the church is not ready to embrace you. The Jesus is not ready to forgive you. God is not ready to restore you. But can I tell you something? Those are lies, lies because you are nothing more than a showcase opportunity for the grace of Jesus Christ who welcomes first into the kingdom of God tax collectors and prostitutes there are some of you having that have had an affair or having an affair you're living with guilt 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 Guilt. You look in the mirror and it's guilt. You get in your car and it's guilt. You go to work and it's guilt. You come home and it's guilt. You can't sleep because it's guilt. You can't eat because it's guilt. You don't want to come to church because it's guilt. And you think, what hope do I have? Brother, you have hope in Jesus Christ, his grace will obliterate your guilt it will set you free from your moral comparisons he will showcase his grace on you you will be welcomed first into the kingdom of God somebody here your soul is toxic septic with bitterness anger you don't know where to turn you don't know what to do you think I can't sing I can't pray. I can't do anything but put fake smiles on my face. You are nothing else but a showcase opportunity for how powerful, how mighty, how wonderful, how good, how merciful the grace of Jesus Christ is. Can I tell you something about me? I am nothing more than a case study of the grace of Jesus Christ. The entire history of my life is nothing but a case study of the grace of Jesus Christ. I preach by grace. I breathe by grace. I live by grace. I wake up by grace. I have nothing apart from grace. I got nothing but I am a case study that His grace is sufficient day in and day out in anxiety and fear and failure and wickedness. I am a case study and brother or sister, friend or neighbor, you can be too. You can be too. I spilt my water all over myself, y'all. I thought I had the lid on it. I didn't. You know, I think I'll preach from behind the pulpit the rest of the way. <laughs> I got excited. Um, <laughs> you know, he, a significant part of what he's teaching is that time is going to prove all of this out. Time is going to prove all of this out. What separated the two sons... What demonstrated the change of mind? What demonstrated the change of life? What demonstrated the change of heart? Time and fruitfulness. One one son initially said that he wouldn't go and did go. One son initially said that he would go and didn't go. What proved it? Time and fruitfulness. What separated the prostitutes and the tax collectors from the leaders of the temple? Time and fruitfulness. You see, time authenticates repentance and time weeds out frauds. It does both. You want to know whether or not your repentance is true. You want to know whether or not your repentance is authentic. You want to know whether or not your repentance will get you before God Himself, whether or not it was really the workings of the Spirit of God in you. Is it fruitful? Has it lasted? Is it fruitful? Has it lasted? You come and you pray and you seek God. Do you want to know if it was God working in your life? Is it fruitful? Has it lasted? Do you want to know if 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 the Lord moving in you to do some new work and go to the mission field or do whatever it is? Do you want to know if that was really God in you? Is it fruitful? Has it lasted? Or is it fraudulent? See, there are people all around our community. Perhaps there are even some of you that are in here hearing me preach this morning. And you believe, they believe, perhaps you believe, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, seated on his judgment seat, and he's going to say, why should you come into my kingdom? You're going to say, Lord, Lord, I called on your name. I professed your name. I confessed my sins. He's going to say, yeah. One time I told you to go work in the vineyard and you you said, yes, sir, but you never followed me. You never obeyed me. You never went anywhere with me. Your love was proven over time to be fraudulent. Your faith over time was proven to be false. Your repentance over time was proven to be fake. And the lowliest Christian will come up, not having lived a perfect life, having false start after fault start after false start. And he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have not been perfect, but my grace is sufficient. You have been weak, but my strength has been made perfect. Come, I have prepared a place for you. I told you last week that I'm an amateur landscaper. A couple of years ago, I bought two trees on the same day. One was a cherry tree, and it had just full of bloom, full of life, leaves, big, healthy. And I bought a crepe myrtle. That was basically a throw-in deal. You know, trade day, I bought them a trade day. You go there, you say, hey, man, what would you give me for that? He says, I'll just throw that one in there. The cherry tree cost seven times more than the crepe myrtle. And I went and I planted them on the same day. When I planted the cherry tree, it was the picture of health. It was exactly what you would want it to look like. When I planted planted the crepe myrtle, it looked like a stick. I was sticking in the ground. But you want to know something? Over time, limb by limb, that cherry tree has rotted and died until ultimately it's completely proven itself diseased and dead. And slowly but surely, that crape myrtle has grown until it has sprouted leaves and limbs and the prettiest pink flowers that you've ever seen. Over time, one tree was proven fruitful and one tree was proven dead. What will your faith prove you to be? Let's pray together.